Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, February 11th, we are studying Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Jesus returns back across the Sea of Galilee to a waiting crowd and two daughters who are in need of his healing. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, uh, it's always great to be here, and I uh, appreciate appreciate being on. Pastor Linnell, as we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. We're at the end of Luke chapter 8 today. What should we know about what Luke has been doing, what he's been saying leading up to the text we've got today? See, you know, it's always a it's always a dangerous thing to do the show live, right? Because like <laughs> it's completely unfiltered. I have no idea what's going to happen or what I'm going to say. Um, no, when we when we talk about uh, what's going on in Luke, I mean, there's general things that we can say about you know the the structure of Luke's gospel, about uh, sort of a pivot point in the story being uh, Luke nine fifty one after the transfiguration when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. There's lots of people that try to set up chiasms and other sorts of structures of things. And I, um, I don't know if that's terribly relevant for us to understand, you know, what's going on in the story today. That, that being said, um, there are some questions that arise as far as the order of events for things. And so it seems to be the case if you're reading through Luke that one event uh, just goes into the next as far as what Jesus is doing. And, you know, he's coming back from, you know, one side to the other, and people are expecting him. If you read through Matthew, uh, it, it seems to give a, a slightly different order of events. And one of the things that we want to say is that it's it's not always the case in the Gospels that they care so much about the order of events. Um, and this isn't because they're wrong or because they're trying to deceive anybody. It's just not the point of what they're doing. Um, and this is actually pretty common in non-Western literature. Um, what will happen is, say, in Matthew's Gospel, for example, it's not organized chronologically. It's organized by discourses. And so what Matthew does is he takes all of these very true events and he puts them together in uh, in, in categories of topic. And so if you're reading through that and it's being taught to you almost like a, like a first catechism, right? Then you understand that, that the order of events isn't the point, right? And that doesn't mean that the story itself doesn't have a general flow and narrative to it, you know, begins with the birth and it ends with the resurrection, but um, when you're looking through and you see things like this, where one gospel has a slightly different order of events than another, or records events that the others don't, or puts them in different places, these are not errors. What it should uh, bring up to you um, in your head is, okay, why did they put them and organize them this way? What are they trying to show us about how these events are related um, about what they what they teach us and how they build on each other or how they support one another. So without going into too much detail, you know, Matthew records a, a little bit more about uh, Jesus going and, and being sort of at, um, at Matthew's house, and Matthew is also a tax collector by the port, and so there's some business that Jesus wraps up, you know, before they kind of go out on these things. And so just as you're reading through, or if, if somebody brings this up to you and they're like, well, see, the order of events is different. Like, that's not actually a big problem. It, it just isn't, because that's not what they're concerned with. And the thing that you should ask yourself more than anything else is not, oh, how did they get it wrong? But what are they trying to tell me in putting these events in order like that? 
So with Luke, then, who who records immediately prior to this, and I believe Mark does the same, the yeah. healing of the man with the demon on the other side of the sea. What What's Luke up to in the way that he's ordering his events here? Well, you know, for Luke, um, he's he's really driving it, you know, at, at a story and at a uh, in a in a in a journey sort of capacity. Right. Like this is uh, as as Luke is writing. Um, and some people have suggested really that that Luke is a little bit more of a of a Gentile focused gospel than than Mark or Matthew is. Right. Um, that Luke was written um really as a as a supplement, not as a supplement, but as a as a support to uh some of what Paul is doing, right? And that doesn't make it Paul's gospel or something like that, but but meant for for sort of Paul's journeys. And so the story is presented in a in a much more narrative kind of form like that and it and it flows. <clears throat> and and with that, I think we're just we're driving towards we're driving towards the transfiguration as sort of the middle climax of the gospel. And this story is about resurrection. Um, and there's, there's what, three, three resurrections that, that Jesus does. We're talking about the, the widow at Nain. We're talking about Jairus's daughter. We're talking about Lazarus. Um, but in this, we're, we're driving towards and we're building towards the transfiguration as a preview of Christ's own resurrection from the dead. And so in, in, there's a number of other things that Jesus is doing as he's traveling through. But for us, walking along with him on this journey, it's moving us towards this, this climax, climactic preview of Jesus's own resurrection and showing us a slightly different um, a slightly different buildup, because we're going to talk about this later, but this resurrection is a resurrection from the dead, no doubt, but it's, but it's not the same as the one that, that we're looking for. It's not the same as the one that Jesus himself is going to be the first fruits of, but it's a stepping stone to get us there. And in a, a very, um, uh, I want to say artistic way, but in, in a very narrative way, he's building us towards that. So it's it's creating this momentum for us. Sure. Yeah. One of the things about this account, and I think this is, even though it's not in the same order as to where it's placed, say in Matthew and Luke, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, where this account is given, you do have these two accounts coming together in this almost like a sandwich form where you find out something about Jairus's daughter, You've got the woman in the middle who kind of interrupts the story, and then you come back to Jairus's daughter. And so this is a, I mean, at least for for when I read through the Gospels, this is one of one of my favorites. the The way that it's structured and what that what that says about these two women that Jesus will encounter and how he helps them and, and what that means for his ministry as a whole. So, any more introductory comments before we jump into the text? Nope. All right, we're in Luke eight, beginning at verse forty. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had, a dis who had, had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. 
That is our text for today. That's Luke 8, verses 40 to 56. So Pastor Linnell, I mean, I think there's pretty clearly three scenes here. The first part of Jairus's daughter, the woman with the issue of blood, and then the second part of Jairus's daughter. Let's start with the first scene. Tell us about Jairus, who he is, why he comes to Jesus, and the, the need that he brings. So Jairus is, uh, he's a ruler of the synagogue, as the, as the text states. And one of the interesting things here about Jairus is that he's named, right? And the thing about naming people in the Bible is when you, when you are reading the Bible and something is in there, you know, you ask yourself, well, why, why is this in here? Why did they record this? And the first answer is always because it's true, because that's what happened. But there are people in there and things happen, the woman, for example, and they don't record her name. There are different um, pseudo-apocryphal texts or writers um, that will offer a name for this person, but the Bible doesn't, and the Bible doesn't um, for a couple of reasons. Um, Sometimes it doesn't offer a name because it is intentionally trying to protect this person, because if you name that person, well, then they can go find that person, right? Um, and so if it's early on and there's a lot of persecution going on and this person is still alive and you name them and then the authorities want to go and create a problem for them, well, they will. And, and that's, that's really an undue burden to put on, on somebody. Now, Jairus, is the, he's the ruler, the leader right, of the synagogue, so he's already a public figure. And it, it doesn't really do – like this is also a very public sort of thing, so people would have known. And what it does is it gives you an opportunity when this is written, really, to go back and be like, okay, well, you said this happened with Jairus's daughter, so I should be able to go back and find the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, and it should be him, or at the very least a record of him, and I should be able to go find him or his family and confirm the story. And this is one of the things in Luke, by the way, that's really, really great, because Luke doesn't claim to be an eyewitness to all of these events. But he does claim to have uh, uh, investigated and recorded these things from verifiable eyewitnesses. You really shouldn't make that claim unless you can back it up. And so recording Jairus's name here is one of the ways in which you do that. Um, and it, it makes the Bible uh, pretty unique among Uh, I mean, for lots of reasons, the Bible is unique, but this is one of the things that makes the Bible unique, not only among historical texts, but especially amongst religious texts. The Bible opens itself up, invites itself to be challenged and verified, because it really doesn't have anything to hide. And so for things like this, it's just sort of like, yeah, yep, all of this really happened. Here's the guy's name. Here's where he was. Go find it for yourself, right, if you really want to. And I think that's absolutely fabulous. And now, in addition to that... Um, so Jairus is here, he's the ruler of a synagogue. This was probably a permanent position, not something that, you know, rotates out so that you always would have been able to go and find him. But he comes to Jesus and he, he falls at his feet and implores him to go to his house. It says because he had his only daughter about 12 years, 12 years of age and she was dying. So Jairus is two things in this moment. He is, he is desperate and he is urgent, right? This is his only child. The, the only child that he's got. And you can tell that he loves her. Um, and he is, he's desperate. She's dying. It's not like she's sick, right? It's not like she's got a club foot and she's going to be hard to marry off or something. Like, she's going to die. And we need to go. We need to go right now. And so there's this wonderful act of faith from a guy who's the ruler of a synagogue. And if he's the ruler of a synagogue, whether or not he's legit a Pharisee, he would have been more in the Pharisee camp. But when it comes right down to it, he knows that Jesus is the only help that he has. Jesus is the only one that can save her, right? Obviously, they would have had the, you know, the, the influence and money to go to all of the best doctors and all of the other things. You know, modern medicine is, or, well, modern medicine for them, would have completely have failed them, right? There's nothing that they can do. This is an act of faith, him coming to Jesus. You have to help me, Right. But then interestingly enough, he says, please hurry and come to my house. So in the midst of this act of faith, there's also a revealing of, at the very least, an opportunity for, for growing or maturing in, in your knowledge of the faith. Because the centurion, right, who's a Gentile, uh, he still understands that Jesus doesn't even need to go to the house. 
all you have to do is say the word and she'll be healed. Jairus isn't quite there yet, right? But I'm not trying to knock him too much because in his hour of need, to whom does he turn but Jesus? And so, so this is really wonderful. Jesus does not share Jairus's sense of urgency whatsoever. He does go, right? But, but he, he doesn't, it's not like he runs, right? He does right. go though. And so, so that's good. Um, the daughter is, is 12 years of age. Um, she's, she's young. She's not, you know, a, a baby. Uh, right now, that doesn't seem terribly relevant, but there'll be an interesting connection that comes up here in a little bit. Um, but that's sort of the scene initially. And so they start going. They start going to Jairus's house. But the thing is, there's a crowd that came to see Jesus, right? And when the crowd has come to see Jesus, if they're going to go to Jairus's house, it's going to be slow going because there's a giant crowd and the crowd wants mm-hmm. to see Jesus. So they're kind of having to move with a giant group of people, with a, a, giant, a giant crowd of people like pressing in around him. And this is what the text says, right? It says that as they went, people pressed around them. And you can imagine how difficult uh, that must have been for Jairus, right? Mm, yeah. Because he is desperate and he understands the sense of urgency, but he, but he doesn't, he doesn't, nowhere in the text does it record his impatience or his anxiety or his frustration. And I think that shows a lot. You know, I'm sure that he was feeling it. But he's really, he must have been battling with himself just to, you know, you came to the guy, you came to this guy, he's going to help you, you know, just relax. Um, And just to, you know, pause at that for a minute, because I think that this is a big theme. There's a lot of times when I really want God to help me and I want him to help me right now. And he doesn't seem to have the same urgency that I do. And that's frustrating for me. Mm. <laughs> yes, no doubt, no doubt. I think that's that's a common struggle among Christians. Where we, I mean, if, uh, anytime in the Gospels someone comes to Jesus asking for help, I, I think it's an opportunity to reflect on on our prayers. I mean, th- essentially, that's what Jairus is doing. He is praying to Jesus for help for his daughter. And and as you said, I mean, the way that it's laid out here in the text, I can I can imagine the, the urgency. It's there in the text, and and being a father myself. You know, if if one of my children is dying, especially if it's my only child here, I mean the the urgency is just going to be great. And and yet Jesus doesn't seem to have that that same sense of urgency, and and yet he knows what's up. He knows what's going on. He's he's going to provide help, and and in, in so doing, he will strengthen Jairus's faith, and I think the faith of everyone around, or all who get to witness at least, and and those who read Luke's gospel, we are strengthened in our faith as we wait for. Jesus to answer our prayers still today. Now, you you mentioned Pastor Linnell that the age twelve years there in verse forty two it seems like a you know okay that it's mentioned because obviously it's true she was twelve years old, but it seems like Luke and, and the other gospel writers include it because there's there's something coming, and in this middle section uh, we as Jesus is walking in this huge crowd much more slowly than Jairus surely would have liked. There's a woman there, and the number 12 comes back up. So with the about five minutes here before our break, in, introduce us to this woman that St. Luke tells us about in verses 43 and following. So when we come back from the break, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the specifics of her miracle. Um, but, you know, you'd mentioned that uh, Jairus and his faith is going to be strengthened. You know, having this miracle, having this woman come up in the middle of all of these things— um, seems like a test of his faith, right? Because what you're, what you're doing is having this pause, right? You're already slow because of the crowd, and you already have this sense of urgency, and then this thing happens, and we have literally stopped to deal with a woman whose life is not in jeopardy, right? She's suffering great. And so in the midst of all of this, like I can, like I feel anxiety as I'm reading through, but it, it's actually the opposite, this miracle serves to strengthen Jairus's faith in a way that he was not, he was not prepared for. Right. Um, and is that, yeah, I don't, it's certainly not coincidence, you know, it's, it's by the Lord's design, but you know, why this thing in the middle, I can't imagine how difficult it would have been for Jairus to believe if this hadn't happened. And so as this woman is coming up, 
um, there there are these things that are seem sort of incidental, but what they do is they make the woman very relatable to to Jairus so that he can draw connections from it. And we can talk about, you know, numerology and different things with the number 12 and why does it come up and other things like that. But this woman, it says that um, it says that she was suffering uh, and had been suffering from uh, a discharge of blood for 12 years. Right. So her suffering and her ailment has been there really the entirety of, of Jairus's daughter's life. And, you know, as they're going through this miracle, you have you have a woman uh, that's coming up and she's suffering and Jesus is is talking to her and um, and he he speaks to her at the end. He says, daughter, uh, your faith has made you well. Uh, she's been suffering for 12 years. And Jairus, he is all consumed in his thought about his daughter right now. And there's no way that he doesn't make those connections between this woman and his daughter. And it doesn't talk about so much his internal monologue about whether or not he, he was frustrated at first and then felt compassion for her and then other things. But, but at the end of it, there was a woman who comes up and, and she is suffering. She is in several ways relatable to his daughter and Jesus heals her in the midst of all of these things. And so Jairus gets to see firsthand a miracle that Jesus does. And immediately following his being able to see Jesus do this miracle, he's going to get word that his daughter has died. And now what? And, and at the end of this, he says, you know, daughter, right? Go in peace. Your, your faith has made you well. Right. And then he's going to get word that your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher any further. And then Jesus turns around and he says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And, and you can imagine how Jairus would have struggled with that had he not seen seconds earlier Jesus do this miracle to heal this woman that had made him think and connection with his daughter. And then those words, your faith has made you well. And so he turns around to Jairus and says the same thing. I just healed this my daughter, I told her her faith, you know, just believe and it will be well for yours as you know. And so that's, it's a wonderful support and it's, it's terribly relevant. And that's, that is just how that relates to Jairus. It's got his own sort of, the miracle has its own merits that we'll talk about after the break, but that connection is really, really important. And what a, what a, you know, what a wonderful gift of God's divine providence to interrupt us uh, to interrupt Jairus, even as he waits and struggles waiting for the Lord, that he had something to show him that he really needed in that moment. Mm, yeah, definitely. Excellent connections there, Pastor Lenau, how Jairus's faith was strengthened by what happens in the middle. And we're going to talk more about that miracle that happens in the middle on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking about Luke chapter 8 with Pastor Sean Linnell. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, February 11th. We are studying Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56 with Pastor Sean Linnell. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we were talking about Jairus. He comes to Jesus with great urgency. He's a desperate. This is his only daughter. Jesus is going slower than I think most parents would have liked. Perhaps Jairus is there too. Jesus, though, in this interruption, gives Jairus something to cling to when he gets the news that his daughter is dead. That's where we left it. Let's talk more about the specifics of this miracle in the, the middle. The woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. Tell us more about her and then what, what happens that Jesus heals her. See, if you're listening at home, um, you, you really got to give uh, Tim here a lot more credit. See, uh, he is supposed to get like a list of bullet points and all sorts of things <laughs> for us to talk about. 
I don't ever send him anything. And he, he does a really great job of like directing us in a way that, you know, that makes sense and is edifying. And uh, I just, I appreciate, I appreciate the talent that God has given us. Uh, so, yeah. So here we're talking about this, this woman that uh, comes to Jesus with the discharge of blood. And so to, to take that miracle on its own for, for a little bit, right. You have this, this woman who is bleeding and she's got 12 years of bleeding um, and immediately we're, we're sort of drawn to ask, how does that work? Right? Like what, what is that? Um, and I know, I know that there are people and commentators, commentators and stuff that, that have different views and, and things like that. Um, I really, I really can't see this as anything else than sort of a, a, a specific woman's issue, right? Like some sort of menstrual issue. Um, I, I just don't know how else you're going to do that. Um, and, and not only that, but, you know, this is specifically mentioned in other places that this makes her ceremonial and clean. Um, and not only that, but it exacerbates the amount of suffering that you have to understand this woman has gone through over the past 12 years. Now, Luke doesn't record this, right? But Mark tells us that the woman has spent all that she had on doctors and she has suffered much. Just like try to imagine the kind of medicine that is done 2000 years ago, right? And you have gone to all of the doctors with increasing desperation yourself trying to have this issue resolved. And the reason that you have to have this issue resolved is because it makes you unclean, ceremonially speaking, right? I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, it's yucky. What I'm saying is that it makes you ceremonially unclean. It's going to make it so, and, and it disrupts relationships, right? So let's put it in terms of that. There's, there's an entire sort of pharisaic way of looking at things. It makes her unclean. And so, for, you know, from a, yeah, but, but I don't think that that's really her concern. I mean, it is, but it isn't, right? Like, she's not like, oh, I'm unclean. This makes me bad. But what does it mean that she's unclean? How does, how does that affect her life, right? Because what it does is it impedes any sort of meaningful relationship on any sort of societal level. She can't go to the temple, right, in, in really in any capacity. She really can't go to synagogue on, in any capacity. She can't be around other people in any sort of capacity because she can't touch them. Because if she touches them, then she makes them unclean. She can't be with her husband if she has one. She can't get a husband if she doesn't have one. You know, she's all of the things, all of the relationships uh, stop because she can't have any meaningful connection with anybody. And again, as you work those things through, like I can't have uh, really relationships with friends in a larger society. I can't have a relationship with, with my husband. If I have one, I can't have a relationship with God in any sort of meaningful way, receiving the forgiveness because I can't get close enough to do that. Now that's obviously not what, you know, the intention was when, when God put forth these, these rules, these ceremonial laws, like they weren't meant to be a burden. They were meant to be um, a, a, uh, a protection and a hedge around and keeping his gifts, the things they were supposed to be and not mingled with other stuff so that you always knew that, that the Lord's blessing was there and that it didn't, it didn't get mixed up with other things, right? It didn't get confused, but, but sometimes um, a lot of times, perhaps back then, and even still today, sometimes the the people were were so much more concerned with protecting the gift than what the gift was supposed to be there for. And I just need you to understand that this discharge of blood that makes her ceremonially unclean is not an inconvenience, right? It is something that makes it so she cannot have relationships with anybody. That's how desperate she's going to be, right? She can't do anything. And so as she's going around to try to have this thing dealt with, imagine the suffering that she must have been willing to endure just to have some sort of connection with another person, right? What sort of weird medieval macabre sort of things must she have been willing to go through to try to address this discharge of blood? And how horrifying those things might have been if they were indeed uh, particular women's issues, right? And and so so when she is there, and she is risking sort of all of this stuff to go out publicly and to to just to just to touch the hem of his robe in this desperation, you have to reach out and feel for this woman. Like I can't imagine. I mean, I I probably could, but I don't want to. Um, somebody who would be more broken and desperate than that, 
right? There's a tremendous, tremendous amount of sympathy and empathy for this woman. Okay. It's not a minor issue. And that's why it matters. It, it matters because in a very sort of human way, it, it adds weight to this miracle. And also, and also because it's, it's the kind of, the kind of mercy, the kind of grace that we receive from, from the Lord. You know, he, he didn't just do a parlor trick. He, yeah. he saved everything for this woman. And so, you know, so she, she comes up behind him and touches the fringe of his garment and we could talk about, you know, the, the, the manner of traditional garments and they would have had sort of tassels and different things that were behind them. And so it's, you know, she's not just, she's grabbing onto basically one of these tassels, things that were traditional, you know, Jewish garments at the time. And the discharge of blood ceases. And then Jesus turns around and he says, who touched me? Right? Now, I read that and uh, I love Peter because Peter always says <laughs> what I'm thinking. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we have a little thing in church, too, because it's, it's always Peter. And I it, you so usually it comes up here and then I'll say something like uh, and Peter. And then everybody goes, because it's always Peter. It is always Peter. <laughs> it's great. Uh, so Peter says, uh, master, the crowd surround you and, and are pressing in on you. But somebody touched you. Of course they did. I probably touched you. There's 100 people that touched you. What do you want? But of course, that's not what Jesus means. He means who touched me with with this specific purpose in mind, right? You know, who came up and intentionally touched me for this particular reason and, and faith. Um, and, you know, and everybody had denied it, and, you know, because they, they didn't. And so the, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence all touched him and, and, and the like. But it brings up two interesting questions, right? And the first is, is that how miracles work? Like you just, you run up and you kiss the feet of the statue, you touch the shroud, you do whatever, some sort of weird artifact. And like it, it instantly makes you well because you've imbued the water with grace. Like, is that how that works? And the answer is, of course not. Because there were tons of people that were running around touching Jesus. And it's not like, oh, I bumped into Jesus and now I don't need braces. So I guess I can go home. Right. Like, it's not how it works. Um, this this thing did not happen without Jesus's will or his wanting. Mm-hmm. This thing did not happen without Jesus's knowledge, right? Jesus knew, and he he knew he knew the woman. He knew her problem. He knew that she touched her. He knew the faith with which she came, and he he did this for her, right? Mm-hmm. But that brings up another interesting question: If Jesus knew, then why does he ask? Right. Does Jesus know everything all the time or does does he not? And and that question is, I mean, it's not hard to answer, but it but it is. I don't know. It is a particular one. Right. And so without trying to get too technical in it, you know, Jesus has a a divine nature and a human nature and his his human nature arguably then, on its own, right, not arguably, but on its own, doesn't know all the things, right? Um, but his divine nature does. And his divine nature can communicate this, this attribute, this ability, to his human nature. And so, you know, Jesus is allowed, in certain circumstances, to say something like, I don't know. And that's perfectly legit, because he doesn't know according to his human nature, but he does according to his divine. And this applies in a lot of different things, right? So if Jesus goes, I'm tired. Okay. Does God sleep? Does God get tired? Well, no, not according to his divine nature, but certainly according to his human nature, he would, right? Does he need to eat? Does he feel pain? Does, you know, all of those things. And in this way, Jesus relates to us and is very, really, truly human. But when we talk about, does he need to? no, Technically, he doesn't, because his divine nature, right, can communicate a, a need to not eat or not sleep or not get thirsty or not feel pain or fear, to be tempted without any chance of, of falling into sin. Now, you'd say, well, yeah, but that that in itself raises up sort of weird problems when we're talking about whether he knows things, because, like, how can his divine nature know things, but his human nature not know things, but they still be one person and him not have, like, two separate minds about stuff, 
And yeah, I I get that objection, but I don't think it's honestly as big of a deal as people think it is because we do that all the time. Like there's lots of stuff that you know that you don't consciously think of. Hmm. And those things affect you. They affect the way that you think. They affect the way that you act in, in sort of a subconscious way. Now, I'm not saying that that is what's going on with Jesus. What I'm saying is if you as a human being have something that works like that, why does it freak you out that God might have something that's better, right? You know, like God's, so even if you can't understand it, I just don't think that it's that far outside of the realm of possibility. And it explains a lot of things. Interestingly enough, though, it's just not what Jesus is doing here anyway. So I wasted like five minutes of our time. What Jesus is doing here, though, is asking a question that he absolutely knows the answer to. And God does that a lot. Also, when God shows up in the Garden of Eden, and he says, Adam, where are you? Like what? Like he doesn't know? Well, no. So why would God do that? Why does God ask questions that he already knows the answer to? And, and the answer to that is really simple, because how do you have a relationship with somebody if you don't? You know, there's lots of stuff that I know, and I still ask my kids, you know, like my kid will come up to me and he'll be like, did you know that cheetahs run fast? What am I supposed to do? Yes, of course I know that. No. I'm just like, wow, that's really interesting. Tell me more. Like, I already know, you know. But why am I doing that? Because I care about the things that he cares about. And there's this interesting yeah. relationship that's developed this way. And so he does this with the woman, too. And he asks her, he asks her, you know, who touched me? He didn't ask that for his benefit. He did that for hers. But he's also not calling her out. He gives her this opportunity to come forward, right? He gives her this opportunity to, you know, to, uh, to have this, this conversation with him. And it's really important because if she goes away without having this conversation, then maybe she starts to think that the miracle was all of those things. Like, well, I came yeah. up and touched the hem. Was I supposed to have it? Did I steal something? And, he de- and, right, and none of that is the case. And so she comes forward and he says then, right, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Did her faith do it or did his grace do it? Because that's another one that gets brought up a lot, right? Well... No, the grace did it, but the faith received it. And that's not semantics. Again, that happens all the time. I was electrocuted by the toaster. Were you? Or were you electrocuted by the electricity? It just came through the toaster. Was she healed by her faith? Or was she healed by Jesus and the faith is the the mechanism by which it was received? Mm -hmm. Because if she was healed by her faith and not by Jesus, she wouldn't have needed to touch him. She would have just been healed because she believed, right? Mm -hmm. So all of those things, um, and I know that that's a lot, and it's sort of a whirlwind kind of thing, but um, but I think that I want to get to the resurrection part. So I mean, <laughs> sure, is sure. There, is there more that you know? What do you, is there more that we should talk about with Jairus or not with Jairus with this woman? No, I, I think that covers it really well. And I mean, as you were, and I don't want to spend too much time because I want to get to the resurrection too. But just it, some of the things that you were saying remind me very similarly of what happens at the end of Luke seven with the woman who comes to Jesus at the Pharisee's house. And, and just the way that you know, she pushes through whatever social awkwardness would have accompanied her being in the presence of a Pharisee to come to Jesus because she knows how much she needs him. A similar thing happens here. And then the, the conversation that happens after that in, in Luke seven, I think it reminds me some of what you were talking about with Jesus asking these questions inviting this woman to know truly what has happened to her, establishing that relationship with her, strengthening her faith. But then also what we were talking about earlier to transition now to Jairus, that this conversation that Jesus has with the woman, that's going to strengthen Jairus's faith, as we already said. So let's, let's move then to what happens. You know, Jesus says in verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And then in verse 49, Jairus hears, your daughter is dead. I've always, when I, when I try to imagine this text in my head, I, I kind of imagine Jesus saying the word daughter to the woman at the same time that Jairus is hearing the word daughter from his messenger. And, and mm. it's almost like, you know, ah, so the heart-wrenching scene, and yet here comes Jesus. He's just as, I think you said earlier, Jesus is the only help that there is for Jairus. That is even more true at this moment. Take us into the, the final scene. So as Jesus is finishing his conversation with the woman, you know, it says that while he was still speaking. So like you said, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Um, there's, there's so much in the text 
with so little words. And one and and a lot of it is is relationship oriented and and person oriented. And one of the dangers that we have when we read a text is putting ourselves into it, putting our own understandings or things into it when the text doesn't say. But one of the pitfalls that we also have is sterilizing it so much that these cease to be real people with real concerns and real human interactions. And then everything becomes a lesson or some sort of rule or moral of the story for me. And then you, you lose the relationship aspect of it. And we become in a sense like Pharisees so focused on what the word says for me and how I relate to, you know, to God and I'm right with him that you you, you just miss the spirit of the text. And, And there has to be a balance there. If you look at these things, like how can it not, how can you not see Jairus and see this woman and see the the relationship that's being developed between them and Jesus, their struggles and their pain. And yeah, you know, while he's still speaking, he hears this, you know, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. And whether or not the messenger intended to or not, there is a temptation there with that word teacher to, to focus on a different sort of relationship. Because if Jesus truly is a teacher, then he has nothing to offer you. Like if if Jesus is only a teacher, excuse me, he has nothing to offer you. But if Jesus was only a teacher, then you never should have gone to him in the first place. And so whether or not this word is said with any sort of venom, trouble not the teacher any further, or whether it was said innocently, well, but honestly, you know, without understanding is irrelevant. The fact of the matter is it's a temptation to see him as a teacher and not who he really is. And so this miracle that Jairus was, was able to witness then and hearing those words right, right together, Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And this do not fear is a word of absolution. It's, it's a word that, that says you have nothing to fear from God, right? Your sins, your, 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 your doubts, your unbelief are not held against you. Right. God loves you and he is here for you. I don't, you know, fight, you know, with you or with your enemies, but for you. And so then, um, so they start going to the house and in Mark, it records that Jesus doesn't allow the crowd to follow them from this point on. So it's, it's Peter, James and John and Jairus's, uh, uh, Jairus and his wife. And, and this is important um, because they have a moment of, of, of sort of quiet introspection as they get there to the house. Um, and when they get there, uh, it says that there is weeping and mourning. And it's a weird sort of cultural thing that I don't, I don't really understand. Like I understand what happens. I just don't get why they do it where they would have had professional mourners, people that come in and make a big scene, you know, because something tragic has happened. And so you make a big scene about it. Like, I don't get it. I would find that to be intensely annoying and kind of offensive, but it's what they did. And so Jesus comes in and, and he basically silences them and he says, he says, stop it. You know, stop, stop weeping. I'm hoping that he's as irritated as I am. And, um, but he says, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And it says that they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Like, this isn't like family members and he's offended them because he said a thing. Like, these are professional mourners and they don't care. Like, they really don't. They're getting paid to be there. And Jesus basically said, stop it. She's, she's not dead. And so they're laughing and they're genuinely laughing, not scornfully, a little bit, but not scornfully laughing like they've been hurt. They're laughing. They're like, right. Pretty sure she's dead. That's why we're here. That's why they called us, you know, all of the things. Um, but he says that she was sleeping. Now, of course, she's not. She's legit dead, right? Don't take his words here as, oh, well, she was in a coma or she wasn't really dead or something like, no, 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 she's dead. Um, and then it says, they laughed at her, taking, you know, knowing that she was dead, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child arise and her spirit returned. So if you were curious as to whether or not she was actually dead, it says her spirit returned. <laughs> so this is the moment, right? And she got up at once and he directed her to give her something to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one The little, right? So he said, child arise, right? Or little girl arise. Um, this, this word of arise, like it's that word. It's 
that word that brings her back to life. And this is the same word. This is the same word that we're going to hear ourselves on the last day when uh, when Jesus raises us from the dead. You know, and it's the same word that he's going to that he's going to call us up with. And it's this this really beautiful image of the thing that awaits us, except except that it's not quite like it's 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 a it's a reflection, but it's not the actual one. Somebody brought this up to me the other day. They said, well, how can Jesus be the first fruits of the dead if he raised three people in the Gospels? So he obviously wasn't the first one to come back from the dead, regardless even of Old Testament resurrections, right? And I said, yeah, no, that's a good question. Because this girl, Lazarus, the widow's son at Nain, like they're raised from the dead and they're going to have to die again, right? They're going to sin even in their life after that. But when Jesus rises from the dead, Death has no hold over him. He cannot die again. And the resurrection that we have and the resurrection that we have that's coming is one that this gives us a little bit of a glimpse of. But it's even better than this, because when we're raised from the dead, there is there is no more death again. There is no more sin or suffering or those things. And that doesn't mean to take away from what Jesus does here. Because this is a preview of things to come. And how amazing must have that been for Jairus? Absolutely, we should rejoice at this and imagine what that would be like. But the amazing thing, it's not to put this down. It's to say that when Jesus raises us from the dead, it's even better. The thing that's coming when Jesus returns is even better. You know, and, and so, again, you, you see some of this, right? But, but what's coming is even better. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. That what is coming in Jesus, the resurrection that we await on the last day, the one that Jesus already has, that's going to be even better. And as I mean, I I've, the words that Jesus says there, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. As you said, she she is physically dead. That's very true. And yet the fact that Jesus is able to call death asleep, I think should be a great comfort to us as Christians that the death, which looks so permanent, is something from which Jesus will awaken us and and an even better way than what happens here where she she comes back from the dead but then she lives in a life of of sin and she dies again when Jesus awakens us on the last day when he calls our name and says to us arise that will be to immortal life in which there will be no more sin no more pain no more suffering no more death something even better that is awaiting us Pastor Linnell we've got just under five minutes left on the morning. As, as you reflect on this text, the good news that is here for us, help us to, to summarize it and, and give us all the good news that Jesus has for us from Luke chapter 8. When he says, uh, the child is not dead, she is but sleeping. One of the questions that, that I've been asked, you know, in the past is something like, well, does that mean that, you know, that death is like sleep? And there's two ways to answer that question, depending on what people actually mean. Um, and the first way is to say no, because some people get the idea that there's like this soul sleep, right? So you die and then your, your soul, whoever you are or whatever is unconscious or in essence sort of ceases to exist. And then you, you close your eyes and then open them almost immediately. And it's as if no time has passed for you or something. Right. And that's, that's not something that we believe this idea of soul sleep, you know, your, your soul resides in paradise with Jesus, you know, in, in heaven, like there's, there is something good that, that awaits you. But also, yeah, it is like sleep. We, we prepare for death, like we prepare uh, for sleep so that we can prepare. No, we prepare for sleep. Like we prepare for death so that we can prepare for death. Like we prepare for sleep. You know, when we when we go to bed at night, we we do this with a preparation as if we would not open our eyes in this mortal coil again. We we ask for forgiveness. We we kiss our loved ones. We we pray that the Lord would protect us and keep us. You know, and all of these things. And and we do this every single day, so that when that last day comes, this is not something new. We've we've trusted the Lord every single time that we've closed our eyes, that we will open them again at the rising of the sun. And so in the same way, when it's time for us to close our eyes, perhaps for the last time in this world and in this life, we do so with, with the same preparation and also with the same sure and certain hope that we will open them again at the rising of the sun. 
And so with this girl, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of hope and comfort and, and direction and example that we see. And not only that, but we, we experience a similar resurrection every single day. Because even if, even if it's not our mortal bodies, our very souls, our very spirits, right, rise or lay in, in sleep and, and in death. And it's only the gospel that daily causes a new man to rise and to live before God and to try to serve. Each and every day, the old sinner in us, the, the, the brokenness that we have, the sinfulness, the selfishness, the idolatry of lifting up ourselves should be laid down into death that Jesus might come to us and tell us to arise, tell us to arise and to, you know, to do this and bring us to, to his meal and to his table and to feed us and to, to restore our relationships and to, to give us hope. And so this thing that we see with, with Jairus' daughter is something that we should live in each and every day in anticipation of that great and last day when we will be raised to a true resurrection from the dead, which has no end, which has no more sin and suffering, which is once and for all, and which is found only in Christ Jesus, who is the first fruits of the dead, our hope and resurrection, our eternal life. Pastor Sean Linnell is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us today with Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 8 or any comments on the text, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.